I was born a young black child. All right, folks, we got a great episode of the Boombastic cast for you today. We have Carl Gottlieb, the one and only, the legend, you know, writer of uh, films like Jaws. You might have heard of that film before. You like comedic films. Maybe you maybe you heard of a movie called The Jerk with Steve Martin. Uh, maybe you've seen a movie with Ringo Starr called Caveman. You know what I mean? Beside and, and myself. Maybe, maybe you're feeling sick. Maybe you feel like you, you need to see the good doctor. You, you need to see the doctor. Detroit. Doctor right. Detroit. Calling out the doctor Detroit. Uh, one of my favorite comedies of all time. Uh, the Dan Aykroyd vehicle, Dr. Detroit. So much, I love it so much. I'm rocking the T-shirt for the occasion. Um, the gentleman is, you know, he was in MASH, uh, you know, variety comedy shows with the greats, you know what I mean? The legends, rest in peace. Um, George Burns. George Burns, you know, the cigar, the cigar tipping legend himself you know we we finally got ourselves a story of george burns we've been reaching for one of them for a while on the cast and we finally have a george burns story and now we owe that to one man and what man is that carl gottlieb well that's invite him to the show ladies and gentlemen without any further ado welcoming to the boombastic cast for the first time the great carl gottlieb I believe I believe it all started roughly around with the committee. Was that one of the first kind of jumps into entertainment? Uh, yeah, it was. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, this is uh, just pick a better picture for myself here. No worries. All right, there's a CBS Television City. I like it. Where I got my first professional writing break. I like that. Seen, seen as seen from the roof of the Writers Guild building. There's a nice rainbow keeping everybody happy. Yeah, I like exactly. It. And it's falling right on CBS. <laughs> they like that. They made it that. Oh, well, there's always gold at the end of the rainbow, right? Always a pot of gold. Yeah, that's always true. Always a pot of gold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we had uh, we had the great Larry Hankin on the show, and oh, yeah. uh, that guy. That, yeah, great dude, and uh, he was a part of the. He was also a part of the committee. So, uh, Absolutely. he got me involved. That's the yeah, got involved. He, he looked, hang, linked you right on in. Well, yeah, yeah. The, the committee's a cool uh, comedy troupe. You know what I mean? It's like Second City, but a little more political, if I remember correctly. Um, a very cool deal. Now, how did that? You know. Kind of how how did how did how did you get involved with the the committee? Well, um, Larry got hired. I was in the army in Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri. Uh, Larry had been my we we were roommates in Greenwich Village before I got drafted. But then I got drafted, and I'm in the army in Fort Leonard Wood, Missouri, minding my own business, reading the St. Louis Post Dispatch. Uh, because we're just 100 miles down the road from St. Louis. And I see that a show called Compass Theater is opening in Gaslight Square in St. Louis. And one of the actors featured in the show is my old roommate, Larry Hankin. So I go to St. Louis, and I meet, I, I meet up with Larry, and I take uh, every opportunity I can to go to the city and pretend I'm not in the Army and just hang out backstage at the theater and give suggestions and you know, just participate. 
And, and in any case, the Larry, the show closes, and Larry goes up to Second City, and gets then gets hired by Alan Myerson to be in the committee in San Francisco. And he writes me about how well it's going. <clears throat> and then I uh, get out of the army. I, I'm 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 still uh, committed to my time in the service. But when I get out, I go to San Francisco, and uh, I'm the, com- the committee needs a stage manager, so they offered me a job as stage manager, and that's what I did in those days. I was a techie, so I took the job, and I roomed with Hankin and uh, uh, continued our relationship from college. I mean, did we go back? to 1957 yeah. and and uh, uh, it all went well I, I went to New York and came back as an actor and I was an actor in the show uh, one of my best friends in the show Howard Hessman just died recently very un- unfortunate but that's happening more and more these days as uh, people age out and disappear anyway uh, that's, how I, that's how I got into the committee through Hankin that's cool. Yeah, and that kind of it. You guys, kind of, would you say you kind of like, um, you know, rooted up from there and kind of polished up your stuff, and then, you know, I know the variety shows were big with Larry as well. We and you did some Smothers Brothers yourself and stuff. Yeah, no, what what happened was uh, in the, uh, like I said, I went to the committee as a stage manager, and then I became an actor in the show in '66. And then in 68, the show came to Los Angeles with me in it. Larry Staten was, was out of the show by this time. He was in San Francisco living in his car. And um, I, uh, so I, I, I went to L.A. to open the show in L.A. And we were very successful. I mean, we got <clears throat> rave reviews from the mainstream press, which in those days was the L.A. Times and the Herald Examiner. Uh, the trade press, which was Daily Variety, Weekly Variety, and the Hollywood Reporter, <clears throat> and the LA Free Press and the Avatar, which were the two underground papers, the alternative press. Yeah. So we were hit, you know, with everybody. And people came and saw the show and, hired, you know, started the casting directors, started seeing us and hiring us. Chris Ross went into a movie called Viva Max with Jerry Paris directing. I was hired to be in the movie of uh, MASH with Robert Altman. And then the Smothers Brothers hired me to be a writer, first on the Glenn Campbell show, which is where I met Steve Martin and Bob Einstein, uh, Rob Reiner, all my L.A. showbiz friends. And, uh, uh, you know, we just, you know, went from one show to another and, you know, managed to, uh, I was lucky. I, I got involved in some exciting shows including of course the fish movie yeah <laughs> the uh i always consider those comedy troops to be like punk rock you know what i mean like a real underground punk rock raucous you know type of group like a lot of fun well i i, I see them i see it a little bit differently i see them no. more like the group theater and the method acting days of the 40s and the 50s uh and it, it, what the stanislavski method was to actors of a previous generation, improvisation was to the actors of my generation. Now, you know, I'm, I'm old now, but in the 70s, uh, you know, 
first of all, there weren't that many improvisational theaters. We all knew each other. If you were in the committee or the premise or Second City or Compass Players, that was all the improv improvisers there were. And then the groundlings started up. That was a, a, a former committee stage manager began the groundlings, Gary Austin. Um, and and uh, so the principles of improvisation became the new principles for informed acting styles uh, going forward from 1970. And that's, I think that's true right up until today. I mean, you've got all kinds of stars who, I mean, you scratch a modern comedy star, whether it's, uh, you know, Amy Poehler or uh, Tina Fey or, or uh, Bill Murray, they were all in improvisers first. Yeah. And they all bring that sensibility to their work. Yeah. So if you understand improvisation, you understand modern acting. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, one of the things you mentioned was being in MASH. And uh, one of the uh, great things about that film, I mean, it's one of my all-time favorites, is the fact that uh, the film was heavily improvised from what I've read and, and, and heard about. And now... Did they, uh, I'm assuming they had a script and they just let you guys jump off of that, or did they just sometimes just had you guys just improvise with a loose idea of what you guys were doing? Or? No, no. In, in all cases, we started with a script. I mean, no, no, very few people make up a movie. Uh, John Cassavetes used to do that with kind of disastrous effect. I mean, you know, his, uh, improvisation is not what John Cassavetes did, yeah. although he did make it up as he went along. I don't think you. I think Cassavetes was kind of old school, and didn't understand the new the new style of improvisation, whereas Bill Murray obviously did. Uh, so so uh, uh, feature films were not improvised. Everybody worked off the script, yeah. including Altman and Mash. But he would encourage you to ad lib. He wouldn't discourage. You know, some directors. And it will tell their script supervisors, you know, watch the book, tell me if they go off book, and then they will cut. No, no, do it, you know, do it the way it's in the script. And other directors just let the actors go and record it. And as uh, technique advanced and we had digital recording where you didn't have a physical piece of tape, you had to, you know, constantly rewind if you wanted to do something again or, or take two, you know, you have to look for big pieces of tape and film and yeah. all that, you could essentially improvise as long as you had a mag as long as you had a chip in the camera recording what was going on, you could improvise. Yeah. So so and Altman encouraged us to do that. And then he developed a camera style, which is the kind of distinctively Altman's you can kind of recognize his films, his visual style. He would use he would put a he would begin the day by putting on a telephoto lens, you know, a zoom. And then he'd start shooting. And he'd always keep the camera about, instead of pushing in for a close-up, he would zoom in subtly for a close-up. And he, But he, the camera was generally like six or eight feet away from the actors. So as an actor, you couldn't tell if Altman was favoring you with a close-up or if he was wide on the entire ensemble. So what that forced you to do if you were a conscientious actor is pay attention to the character and concentrate and, you know, 
talk to the other actor on the set and, and, and you know, just, it, it made you do your job, which was great. Yeah. And, and he would record it all. And, uh, it, it led to, you know, really interesting work. I don't think Viva Max was improvised because Jerry Paris didn't understand modern directing. Jerry Paris was old school also. Yeah. It's very funny. You can see Jerry, Jerry Paris is in the wild one with Marlon Brando. Yeah. yeah. He's one of the biker gang, if you can imagine. I like that. Yeah, Robert Altman's a fantastic director, and he's like a great for ensemble cast with a bunch of people. I believe Nashville had like twenty something main characters or something oh, like yeah, that. Yeah. No, and, and and you can follow all their stories. I mean, yeah. almost terrific that way. It was funny. Ring Lardner Jr. wanted to take his. He was an accredited screenwriter on Mash, and when he saw the dailies and he saw how the film was being cut, he wanted to take his name off it. He and even mm-hmm. even. Uh, Elliot Gould and, and uh, Donald Sutherland were, you know, kind of unhappy with the style. They, they were not comfortable with it, and they wanted to replace Altman. Or, but then, as people started watching it, and then of course, when the movie was nominated for an Academy Award for screenplay, boom, Ring Lardner said, "Oh yeah, I wrote that." Yeah. <laughs> I didn't write a word of it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, that's usually how it goes. I mean. I mean, especially when you're doing something that is not um, not the standard, not what everyone else is doing. You're always going to have naysayers. You always have people like, well, you're not supposed to do that. That, yeah. And a lot of people don't see how it works until, you know, the finished product is put together. Yep. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that's one of the things I love about Altman films is the fact that, you know, everything, I mean, it... it when you watch his films, it feels less of a movie and more of like watching real life because it just feels so natural. In- yeah, well, f- f- film is, for the most part, or a, a subset of film, is that it's realistic. If you're watching it in a movie, you know, it, you expect it to look like real life. You don't, you don't, you don't, you don't want to see stagey acting. You don't want to see British acting. <laughs> you, you want to see it as natural as possible. Yeah. And uh, you know, th- through close-up and good good film and editing technique, uh, uh, films look that way. And, and unless they're extremely stylistic, like Adelar or uh, horror films, which have their own aesthetic going back 50 years. Uh, but for realistic stories, realistically told, you can't beat uh, modern you know, improvisation-based acting. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it was Altman where, even with his audio, like he was one of the first people to like, intertw- in, like intertwine different dialogues over each other. Over, yeah, overlapping yeah. dialogue. It was very frustrating in the, uh, on MASH and the next couple of films. They hadn't developed multi-track recording yet. Everything was recorded on a four-track. Yeah. So if you went to Daly's, Altman had a mixer on his lap and was kind of, as the, the film unfolded, the soundtrack was very, very difficult to listen to because Altman was, you know, playing with the dials, looking for the the channel that had the actor who was speaking. There was like, yeah. you know, eight or ten actors being recorded. He had to find the, you know, the audio track that had the actor whose close-up it was 
was very frustrating. And on top of that, Altman would smoke a giant joint before <laughs> before dailies. You know, he we'd come in from the set and he'd have a, a scotch and a joint, and then he'd be ready to work. Yeah. Now, now that sounds like a a a fun uh, fun atmosphere. I, it, it would be great going to work to have a joint in and a scotch at the same time. <laughs> well, it was. It, it, for me, because I, I was I was interested in learning everything there was to know, it was great because I saw the raw technique and the mechanics, and I was always interested in the technical aspect uh, technical aspect of things. So uh, I was soaking it all up and making notes for what I would do if I were a director. And then I became a director, lucked out. So you work, you worked with some great directors, you know, you soaking it up. There's no better way I think to learn, you know, than to be on set with these people. Yep. You know, we got Steven Spielberg, of course, you know, it doesn't, it's funny. I tell, I tell people, cause me and Alex make movies over here. And I tell people, I said, you know, a, a director is legendary when people hear that you're trying to make movies and they call you them. You know what I mean? Like, okay, Spielberg. Yeah. Go make your movie. You know what I mean? But that's how legendary he is. Oh, yeah. You know? Now, you go back, way back with Steven, I believe, right? That's true. Yeah. I'm in two of his movies that he made before Duel. Yeah, Something Evil. Something Evil. And I want to check yeah. Yeah. I, I want to check out Something Evil. I haven't seen it, but it's like The Exorcist before The Exorcist, right? Exactly right. It was The Exorcist before The Exorcist. Same theme. Yeah, you got to give that prop. It's funny because you say bring up Duel, and like a lot of people go, they they go, they automatically think of those bigger films. Of course, you know what I mean. They kind of forget that he had the the humble beginnings, if you will. Also, you know he directed I mean? the first episode of Columbo. Yeah, that was very interesting. Yeah, doesn't he reclaim some type of ownership? I heard if you direct the pilot episode of a TV show, you're like forever involved with it. Is that true? Uh, I have no idea what his contract was. No, I think that there, that there was one of those. He had no leverage as a deal maker in those days, but he was um, mentored by Sid Sheinberg, who was head of the studio. Head of at that time, Sid was head of television production, and he mentored Stephen. He's the one who gave him his first contract at Universal as a director and let him direct Night Gallery and, yeah. and uh, Columbo and his early his early directing efforts. Yeah, yeah, it's it's kind. It was cool to hear about kind of the, up, the upcomings of Spielberg as well, because like I said, he, I, it don't get no bigger. You know what I mean? It is what. Oh, it I is. know absolutely. Well, it was it was amusing that uh, 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 my wife and I had, in those days had a house that was like right in Hollywood, like midway between. Laurel Canyon and Wally Heider's studio in the Hollywood Bowl. So everybody who lived in the canyon and worked in Hollywood, which in those days was everybody who counted, Jackson Brown, David Crosby, Joni Mitchell, uh, you know, the whole David Geffen stable, you know, all, all those people uh, were frequent guests at the house. They would, you know, stop by on the way to work, you know, smoke a joint, hang out, you know, they, they you could be sure that somebody else you knew would drop by. So it was, you know, a great big... Uh, you know, kind of extended family. And uh, it was a great way to stay in touch. And it, it, it uh, 
it, it kept everybody on their toes, and and uh, we all. It, there was a sense of community in those days. It's missing right. now, but in those days there was community. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that completely. And uh, it's a very artistic atmosphere. You know what I mean? Well, it's 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 nourishing. I mean, you know, there's a lot of people around you doing the same thing, and because there was a sense of community. You would pass along opportunities. It's you know, kind of unheard of these days for actors to share casting notes with other actors because you know parts are too hard to get. Yeah. But those days, if uh, I'd be auditioning for something, I usually found myself at auditions with the same same actors. You know, the same physical body type. With me, it was Oliver Clark and uh, Michael. Uh, what was his name? Michael Lerner. We always showed up at the same. So, you know, uh, in those days, if you were up for something and you were in casual conversation with one of your peers, you would say, have you, hey, have you been up for this part? You know, have you been up for MASH yet? And the guy says, no, I don't even know anything about it. I said, well, call your agent. They're casting and they're looking for a guy like you. I mean, they saw me, but they'll see you too. I mean, you would tell people about casting opportunities, which nowadays is unheard of. It's, yeah, my counterpart over here is an actor and it's uh it's a wild world because yeah, even if you're not the body type or anything, they won't, they still, it's like, they don't want the, they don't want you to get the joy of getting the role is like the, it's not just the role. It's like the joy of getting something that they don't want to like dish out and share. You know what yeah. I mean? Yeah. I mean, the thing that we have to remember as actors and artists is they can't do it without us. It's true. You know, they, they gotta have us. And, they keep us controlled by making it appear difficult and making it arbitrary and by making stupid decisions. Uh, and then we just have to persevere and to try to overcome those odds. So we do. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's uh, and going back with what you're saying about uh, the sense of uh, community. I mean, Matt and myself have tried to build kind of a community where we are in Boston, try to, but we find, I mean, even at our level, and we're not, we're not even up to the level of, you know, the uh, bigger films in Hollywood or anything, but a lot of people, unfortunately, have this mentality that, you know, if, if I'm not going to get this role, you're not going to get this role, so I'm not going to help you get the role. Well, that's, that's just stupid. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that's where selfishness and uh, self-interest uh, get in the way of the work. Yeah. Because acting is, uh, and movies are, in, you know, intensely collaborative. No, you know, the only person who makes a movie entirely by him or herself is an animator who draws every frame <laughs> and records all the voices. That's the only person who's actually a solo filmmaker. Everybody else depends on collaborators. Yeah. And the thing is that, you know, it's such a collaborative piece of, I mean, uh, as, as different uh, ways of being creative, different art forms and all that making film is like you said, extremely, you have to collaborate. I mean, if, if you have people fighting each other, then that the film's not going to come out. It's not going to look good. And you have to look. it's, It's interesting. Uh, I used to, I had a script supervisor on one of my movies who used to mutter if we were having a good time, she'd say, 
Uh, a happy set is a crappy set. I don't agree with that. I think no, that, I, 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 I look forward to, you know, enthusiasm from everybody involved is, I think, a better way to work. For sure. Everybody's kind of having fun, but, you know, not out of control fun, but enjoying their time there. And, you know, yep. they get a, be a part of the collaborative process is big too. You, you know, if you're, you're putting in input and it's being used, you, 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 you value that project a lot more because it's more your own, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. I, I wonder why the acting community has gotten that way. You know what I mean? Uh, is, well, the world has the, gotten the way. The, I mean, COVID has changed everything, but the, the, the way the world was heading even pre-COVID yeah. was more and more toward um, self-interest above all. Yeah. And despite what Adam Smith, the economist, says about uh, individual, you know, individual greed conspires to make for a healthy market. Um, it, uh, I, you know, I, I don't think so. I, I think if we lose the spirit of cooperation, a lot goes out of the process. And, and, I don't know when it changed, but it just, just I guess, people got more selfish. It's a celebrity has become such a big thing. I mean, you open up the, you go to the grocery store. Yeah, every, we're yeah. in an era where people, McLuhan described them. He said, you know, uh, people are well known for being well known, yeah. not well known for any particular talent. I mean, the Kardashians are right. a perfect example. Yeah. They parlayed, you know big asses and good complexions into a multi-million dollar enterprise. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. And then, you know, you got, you got so, kids. And, and, and when the normal person sees that, mm -hmm. they, they uh, say to themselves, and I can't blame them. They say, well, this person's got no fucking talent and they're rich and famous. I've got, I, so I can be rich and famous whether I've got talent or not. Well, no, that, that's Dang not man. how it works. Yeah, Fame and fortune are still imponderable and can't be created. You can buy it up to an extent, but eventually when your advertising money runs out, if you don't have a product, you don't have a product. All the advertising in the world won't convince an audience to see something if the word of mouth is bad. Sure. It's like uh, who we choose for heroes uh, isn't quite... Up, up the caliber, you know what I mean. Nowadays, it's it's unfortunate, but I no, I, I, po I posted on Facebook a very a true expression of how I feel now. It's because uh, I, I was you know just dismayed by the number of people I didn't recognize who were obviously stars because everybody else was interested in them. Mm. And then I realized, well, you know what, media today, you know, right now, two thousand twenty two. Is is dominated by actors and players who I don't like producing material that you know I hate. Yeah. So you know, it was, so I, I I recognize a couple of the uh, women all stars, uh, you know, Adele, Lady Gaga, Madonna, Beyonce, Rihanna, those people. But beyond them, there's you know nobody I'm interested in. Certainly no male actors. Yeah. Uh, and there's a, some male actors whose fucking success baffles me entirely. Um, that 
for example, Pete Davidson, who I think is a, just a fucking joke. But he is. People, people love him, so good for him. Yeah. He's got, he, he's got another, that Kardashian uh, thing, yeah. Another illustration of the power of Saturday Night Live. There you go, yeah. Him, you know, he's tagged right in with the Kardashian clan. It's funny because he was just SNL, a dude on SNL that knew, nobody really knew. I think he 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 controversy, and then he dated a Kardashian. Now he's like the biggest deal. Yeah, yeah. and he's still ugly and has no talent. <laughs> he looks like Beetleju- the Beetlejuice cartoon. He looks like Beetlejuice from the Beetlejuice cartoon. Yeah. Hey, don't insult Beetlejuice. He looks better. I yeah. know. I shouldn't hate on Beetlejuice. Yeah, it's weird. It's 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 kind it's scary and sad where they like put these heroes at. You know what I mean? It's because, uh, like you said, dude, it makes oh, by, the, the, by the way, <clears throat> Pete Davidson, if you're watching, I don't really hate you. We got your back. <laughs> Kanye West really hates you, Pete Davidson. We like you. It's okay. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's just amazing because um, uh, we were talking to uh, someone else on the show, and he made a comment, which is so true that I think it was only maybe ten or twenty years ago. Um, they asked a bunch of you know young people, uh, "What do you want to be when you grow up?" And back in the old days, I wanted to be like, "Oh, I want to be an astronaut. I want to be, you know, um, the president." But now. You talk to most of these young people, all they say is, I want to be rich and famous. Not that they want to excel in any specific <laughs> career or want to do or give back, but everyone just wants to be rich and famous. And they want the 15 seconds in the spotlight. You know, yeah. Warhol's got a lot to answer for. Yeah. It's yeah. true. Yeah. But, yeah. Well, the, 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 the interesting thing about that is, if everybody does get their 15 minutes of fame in the future or in the present, the, yes, we will have to endure them, but only for 15 minutes. That's true. <laughs> true, true. We, can, we nice. can fast forward through the 15 minutes of their fame and then get on with our lives. What, what would people want? It's like uh, the, the Willy, and the Willy Wonka. Like if they got what they always wanted, what would they, life would be meaningless for everybody. It would be more depression going around or something. I guess. I mean, you know, it wouldn't be so bad if everybody got what they wanted, but, you know, be careful what you wish for. Yeah. And, get- and the, tr- the truth is a lot of people, I mean, I think the fact is that a lot of people don't really know what they want. I mean, yeah. they just, they think they know what they want. And when they get it, they realize that what they want, what they were hoping would fulfill their you know, emptiness or what they think they needed, they find out that it doesn't fill that. And then they find themselves more depressed than before. Yeah, too bad. Yeah. <laughs> That's priorities. Yeah, by, by being stupid and not having your priorities in order. Yeah, it's definitely a priorities thing. It goes right back to that, and you know, showcasing what what they make, making people think what they what they re- what they want when you know if they if they can, you know they, it doesn't have to be so you know bombastic. You know, there's, you there's find a, happiness within. Uh, I don't know if Hankin told you this story about, uh, I think it was his father. Uh, when the committee played Broadway, his family came in from Long Island, obviously, to see the show. You know, their son was on Broadway. It was a big deal. Yeah. 
and after they went out to eat after the show, and his father said, so, uh, after, so now what? And Larry said, well, you know, we're uh, it, uh, then we're going to go to San Francisco and back, maybe make movies. And then his father said, and, and then what? He said, well, then, uh, then I'll get more jobs as an actor. I'll be better paid. And his father said, and then what? If you just keep asking yourself, and then what? Uh, eventually, you either come to what you really want, or you come to the realization that you're in a, a dead end where the only uh, the only payoff is 15 minutes of fame and fortune. And if you don't bank all your money from that period, you know you don't. You don't chances are you won't get a second try. Some people get second and third chances. I think Fitzgerald said there are no second acts in life, but there are a lot of second acts. Yeah. A lot of people reinvent themselves. But then, you know, eventually you hit your 40s and your 50s and you realize, okay, you know, wherever I am now is where I'm going to be. It's not like I'm, it's not like when you're 20s when you can, you know, move to another city, change your name, grow a beard, shave a beard, you know, <laughs> The possibilities are endless. You can try two or three different professions. You can fail. There's no, you know, there's no terrible penalty for failing. You fail, so what? You move on. But then around 40 or 50, you don't move on. I mean, you know, you're kind of in a groove, and it's not so easy. Yeah. So you'd better be happy at that point in your life, because otherwise, it's going to be another unpleasant 40 years until you until you leave. Uh oh, man! I think I'm in trouble. I'm forty. Uh, I'm, I'm, right. I'm still. I'm still trying to grab that brass ring. Uh, I don't know. Well, the, the, the thing about acting, well, the uh, thing about the arts in general, is that the brass ring can come at any time. Yeah. You know, you you can be, you know, a character actor like Larry, of seventy, you know, seventy some years, some whatever age he is, and if something he's in catches the public eye, all of a sudden he'll be a star again. Yeah. You know? And it's it's uh, famous fickle that way. Yeah. You can't you yeah. can't plan for it. We don't tell them what's a hit, they tell us. That's true. Yeah. Shit. So there's still hope for you, Hawkman. <laughs> I'm hoping, I'm hoping because I mean uh I uh, the I I got the bug and uh, it's not going to ever leave me alone. So I'm going to either make it or die trying. So, well, you know, you, the uh, on on the bright side, uh, character actors don't age out the way leading men do. And with all with all respect, you're not a leading man type, from what I can see. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, come on, come on! I, I was thinking I was going to be like the next Brad Pitt. I mean, I was the next, time, I was the next Tom Cruise, the next Bradley Cooper, the next time. Yeah, I like it. This Brad Pitt. No, <laughs> you're lucky you'll be uh, you, the an actor who can who transitions like uh, John Voight or Dustin Hoffman. Yeah, I can I can definitely go for that. Okay, and uh, yeah, I mean, I I. The characters I play are always, you know, quirky character types. And I've always, always loved character actors over the leading men because they're always the more, more, most interesting characters to watch on TV. On well, show. somebody I know um, who babysat for John Voight's kids 
He was ba- Angelina Jolie's babysitter. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he told Voight, he said, you know, you're, you're making the right... Uh, Voight was agonizing over playing a villain in something. And my friend said to him, hey, cheer up. If you, if you start getting villain parts, your career is limitless. You can play mm-hmm. villains forever. Yeah, it's true. For example, you know, Christopher Plummer or Vincent Price, you know, or, or Harry Dean Stanton, who's had, you know, who had a fabulous career without ever being a leading man. So, you know, character actors do okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. The, um, so, you know, you did a lot of television writing. You know yep. what I mean? Yep. Um, a lot of comedy stuff. Flip Wilson. I love some Flip Wilson. You know what I mean? Some Sammy yep. Davis. Yep. Uh, George Burns. Yep. A little bit of George Burns. Yeah. You got any cool stories about George? Because I love George. Well, George is, was fabulous. He was uh, it's very interesting. My mother-in-law was in vaudeville. And she lived to be 100, 101. So she had memories going back to 1921, 1922, when she went into show business. And she would say, oh, George Burns, he's not as old as he says he is. <laughs> she was you know, pushing, she was in her 90s at this point. Yeah. She says, everybody knows. And by everybody, she meant everybody in vaudeville, most of whom were dead, but... Everybody in vaudeville. They said, when he went on stage in the Pee Wee Quartet, there were child labor laws. And you could not tour if you were uh, under 12, I think. Hmm. A lot of states you could not play. So when George Burns joined the Pee Wee Quartet, which was his first job, he changed his age from 10 to 12 or something like that. So... If he was telling George Burns was telling everybody he was like ninety nine, he was actually ninety seven. <laughs> <laughs> he said it was an open secret in the vaudeville community, but there weren't that many of those people left alive to to point it out. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, yeah very funny guy. His music. <clears throat> I have an uh, I have a record by him called "I Wish I Was Eighteen Again," and that whole album is great. You know what yeah. I mean? I love that album. Uh, well, he was, he was, you know, he was brought up in vaudeville. He was a consummate entertainer. You know, he understood the value of an audience, and and he had a great partner with with uh, Gracie Allen. They were, you know, they killed. They were fabulous. Yeah. The um. So you were you, you wrote a lot of TV, yep. and then you know the Big Fish movie comes into play. Yes. You know what I mean? Um. Now, I know that you kind of came in, uh, you, uh, uh, actor well, first, I, or right, it was like three weeks before shooting, a rewrite yeah, was needed, I believe. That's right. Yeah. Yep. That's when I started. Yeah. And I kept rewriting right through the shooting until all the dialogue was rewritten and there's nothing left for me to do. So I got to leave the, leave Martha's Vineyard, but Richard and Roy and, and uh, 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 Robert had to stay because they still had you know, two months of shooting at sea to get all the shark stuff right. So while they were sweating out days trying to get a shark shot 
in the can. Yeah. I was back in L.A., you know, uh, pursuing my career. Yeah. And I know yeah, I know that a lot of people like Steven himself had, was, like, traumatized from uh, just from shooting Jaws and being on the open water so long. And uh, There was a funny story in the book. Uh, for the bo- anybody out there, the Jaws Log, fantastic book. Um, pick it up on Amazon. Uh, so we won't go too deep. There's a lot of stuff in the books. So we won't go too deep into, but I know in there, there's a story of like Spielberg coming back and just every, the closer driving from Arthur's Vineyard, the closer to Boston he got, like the more normal he felt because he was getting back into like, you know, his type of atmosphere with more of a city type vibe. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, Arthur's Vineyard got, that's local to us, which I, I appreciate the stories of, you know, like Dreyfus and the bar and stuff. Yeah. Uh, you know what I mean? Like, I like that whole, that world in our little world type deal. Yeah. You know what I mean? Quite, and, you know, Jaws is a masterpiece. I'm, I'm about to be 40 years old. And to this day, like, I don't go into the ocean above, above the breast line. You know what I mean? <laughs> if I'm swimming in a pool, if I'm in the deep end of a pool, and I'm underwater too long. I start thinking that I could get eaten by Jaws. That's I know. I, I got to tell you that for the last 45 years, whenever I'm introduced to somebody as having any involvement with Jaws, the first thing people say is, you know, after I saw that movie, I didn't go in the water. Yeah. I didn't go in the lake. I didn't go in the bathtub. I didn't go in a swimming pool. <laughs> people would say, you know, I, that was this, I mean, I, I hear that. To this day, 45, 46 years after the picture came out, uh, that uh, people are still afraid of the water. So obviously we touched a nerve that uh, is still being touched. Yeah. I, believe, I, I believe they wanted to do uh, like what Psycho did to the show with the shower scene. They were trying to captivate that with just the whole getting in the water experience, which they, yeah. you guys did yep. incredibly well. Well, it, uh, when... when uh, I used to, you know, wonder that uh, or worry that I was going to be a one-hit wonder. And then I realized that, uh, you know, given how many people were affected by the movie, I, I, you know, I just, you know, okay, relax, accept it. And then for the next 46 years when people tell me that they don't, you know, they get uncomfortable at the deep end of the pool, yeah. I nod and smile and my I guess my principal achievement as an actor is pretending when I hear that line that I, I haven't heard it before yeah. for 50 years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's great when you uh, create, uh, you're part of creating something that has such an effect on people for so long. Yeah, no, and to, to this day, in the AFI list of 100 top horror films of all time, uh, Psycho is number one, and uh, Jaws is number two. And I have, I have, I have in my possession a, a memo I wrote to Stephen, where I, you know, I made two error, uh, two statements, one in error and one correctly. The erroneous statement I made, I, I read the script and I was reacting to the script. I was telling Stephen what I thought, and I said, you know, why does the girl who has sex get killed right away. It's, it's, it's such a horror movie cliche. You know, teenager has sex, dies. I mean, that, that, you know, that's like the penalty for having sexual appetite is burnt is death. I, you know, why do we have to do that? And, you know, it turns out because 
Spielberg made it one of the most chilling opening sequences in the history of movies. So that was my, my incorrect statement. On the plus side, I did say in 1974, if we do our jobs, I'm talking about the screenwriter and the director, if we do our jobs, people will feel about going in the ocean the way they felt about taking a shower after Psycho. Yeah. And it is. Yeah, yeah and, and the only only reason I think Psycho beats you guys out is the fact that anyone can just go into a shower. Uh, no. You have to actually travel to an ocean or a pool or a lake. Yeah. That's the only reason, and I'm standing by this, the only reason Psycho beats you. That's the only reason. <laughs> That's a good insight. I'll, keep, I'll, I'll hang on to that. Thank you. I think it's more of a, a respect towards Mr. Hitchcock is why Psycho is still number one. There was a great – well, there are two great directors. You know. For sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think within time, I think Jaws will eventually take that spot. You know what I mean? Um because, yeah, like, I've never heard anybody talk about being afraid of taking a shower. You know what I mean? But yep. going in the water is like 98% of the people I meet. Yep. Yep. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's the legacy of the fish movie. The fish movie. Uh, you, you That we worked on, you wrote for the, th- the first three. Best, the best yes. thing. I've never seen four. It's okay. I Michael Caine is in it. He does good. Yeah. <laughs> I understand I'm not missing anything. No, 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 no. Uh, no, no. Uh, a shark finally becomes a uh, murderous uh, psychopath and uh, stalks down his prey. Yeah, that 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 was a little far fetched, but you know, eh, well, what you gonna do, right? <laughs> Wasn't National Lampoon supposed to produce, like, do the Jaws vs. People one or something like that? <laughs> yeah, they had. A, they were developing a comedy version, and I think uh, Spielberg was dead set against it. And Scheinberger, they said, you know what, you know, we're we're not going to mock the biggest money maker that the studio ever had. You know, that, that's you know, fuck that. You know, that that's eating your young. You know, that, that's cannibalizing your art. So we're not we're not going to do that. And I I respect that decision. Yeah, yeah, me too. Uh, yeah. It, yeah, it's weird. It's like it was taking on a slasher movie mentality a little bit, where it just went straight. It was going to go all comedy, you know what I mean? Yeah. And Jaws is definitely, I consider like a slasher movie. You have like a, like a fiendish ghoul bad guy that goes out killing, you know what I mean? A body count. It's just a, it's a fish. It's not a person. Yep. Well, by the way, I changed the background. This is Sydney Harbor where a guy was just killed in a, a shark attack. Oh, I, I seen that video. That was horrifying. Yeah, you know something could be said about society for that too. As the, look at that that dude just got eaten by a shark while he's holding his phone up. It's like you can't don't help the guy or nothing. Yeah, <laughs> I guess there's not much help you can give him. Well, you know the, I mean? the, the truth is now is if Martians arrive, nobody's going to be awestruck or frightened. They're just going to all be holding up their cell phones, taking mood, taking uh, taking pictures, and then you know approaching the Martians for selfies. <laughs> yeah, uh, unfortunately, that's kind of uh, where where we uh, are in society. That uh, if they get... ever do a statue that, that typifies the early decades of the twenty first century, it's going to be a, a a future in which the world 
all people are going to be doing this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's 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 a crazy world we live in. Actually, I think it was Mark Twain who said that when technology surpasses, I think, uh, commu- um, like uh, personal communication, uh, the world would be full of idiots or something along those lines. I'm sure I totally like messed up that quote. But whose quote was it? Uh, Mark Twain, Samuel Clemens. Oh yeah, he, oh, I know, I know. He, Mark Twain. Yeah, he made. Uh, like I said, I probably just butchered the quote, but he he made a observation that if uh, technology got to a point which would make like personal communications, talking one on one, obsolete, uh, will be uh, a world full of idiots. Uh, something along those lines, which I think is uh, extremely uh, true, especially nowadays, because, I mean, you you have people literally, like, falling to the deaths trying to get a selfie. I yeah. mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's crazy. It's scary. If the aliens do come, hopefully they'll make contact with somebody important and not like a Kardashian because they're the most famous person in the world. Yeah. That could be a problem too. Then it's a big. That'll be a big ass on the statue with holding the cell phone up. It'd be troublesome. That's kind of where the future's going. Probably everybody with big gigantic asses and cell phones that are just built into their hand. You know what I mean? Well, well, I mean, as, as long as they're not a jerk, right? Well, <laughs> yeah, the jerk. So now you knew Steve Martin from from a little ways back as well, right? No, oh, he was he was a writer on the Smothers Show, and he was a comedian at a time when I was a comedian. Yeah, we each other from the theater. I like that. So, and then we all went to work on the Smothers Show and got our Writers Guild cards. Now, now the time that the jerk came around, did your affiliation with him find you that gig, or did it oh, yeah, just no, kind? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, uh, Steve. Uh, had a fan named David David Picker, who was at that time head of Paramount Pictures, and David saw the potential in Steve and signed him to a three-picture deal. And Steve, Steve a three-picture deal and a short subject that Paramount was going to attach to one of their big summer movies so that the audience would get used to seeing Steve on the big screen. It would be a way to transition from nightclubs and theaters to film. So Paramount funded a pretty lavish short subject called The Absent-Minded Waiter, which I directed, partially in anticipation of directing the feature. But then Steve came to me around that same period uh, and said, you know, I've got this deal to write movies and I've never write, written a movie and you've done, you know, the biggest movie of all time. And you did, a, at that time, I had done a Richard Pryor film, so you know comedy, obviously. Yeah. So we, do you want to collaborate? I said, absolutely. I, I love collaborating with Steve. And because uh, we had great success. We wrote a pilot that went, uh, was straight, went straight from script to being shot, the pilot of George Burns. Mm. Uh, uh, that was a script that went from my typewriter through the tower at Universal with no notes, and it got a green light to be made as a pilot. Wow. And we did. Anyway, so so you know there there's uh, 
obviously a lot of luck involved in, in yeah. any career. But anyway, but, but my association with Steve was we had done stuff together. And of course, Barry Diller and Mike Eisner came over to run Paramount in a triumvirate with Picker. And the first thing they did was shit can all his projects because they didn't want the stockholders realizing that the guy they were replacing was responsible for some big movies. Yeah. So they scrapped plans to make what was then called easy money. Uh, so Steve and his management and David Picker set it up at Universal where, you know, it became a huge hit. Ha ha, Paramount. Uh, and, and we had worked very hard at Paramount to write that script, but I had dropped out before the final rewrite because I had other stuff to do. And Michael Elias did the final rewrite and then shares the screenplay credit with, with you know, the screenplay credit on The Jerk is story by Steve Martin and Carl Gottlieb, screenplay by Steve Martin, Carl Gottlieb, and Michael Elias. And Michael Elias is a huge contributor to that movie. Mm. Now, the, that Easy Money film had nothing to do with the, the Easy Money Rodney Dangerfield picture, did it? No, no. It's just, I mean, it's an obvious title. Just a title? No. You ever meet Rodney? Yeah, yeah. Rodney I, 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 don't, know, I don't, don't know him personally. He's, he seems a little driven. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, the jerk, the great Carl Reiner, you know, directed that. The jerk's one of those, you know... That's on every comedy list as well, you know. That's a masterpiece. For no, listen. I, if I was a Jeopardy category, this is a joke I make all the time. If I was a Jeopardy category, it would be his hits begin with a J. Who is <laughs> Carl Gottlieb? <laughs> you can't leave out Doctor Detroit, the Double D. Yeah, masterpiece. Yeah, uh, the Jerks classic. You know what I mean? There's so many great gags in that. Um, you know, I love that that blowjob line. Well, she's gonna give me a blowjob. That as a kid, dude, I remember just dying with that. The classic, classic. Now, I've heard people refer to that kind of uh, blazing saddles, like you know what I mean. Where, of course, when it was made, it was made with good intention. The thing I'll say about you know, we live in a real PC world right now, but like when you see when there was kind of racial humor back in the day. It was made so everybody could kind of laugh together. You know what I mean? I don't think people understand that. You know, it wasn't culturally sensitive, but then in those days it wasn't important to be culturally sensitive. And uh, to be rude about it, nobody cared what colored people thought. Yeah. It's unfortunate. Well... But we all we all care, as they say in Latin, ultra tamp, ultra mores. Other times, other other yeah. customs. It's true, yeah. you know what I mean. But I, the jerk's great masterpiece. You know, I know the Hawk Hawkman over here is a big fan of the jerk. Oh yeah, yeah. Someone hates these cans. They're trying to shoot <laughs> these cans. <laughs> Classic. But- yeah, I mean, I, I've I've always been a huge uh, Steve Martin fan, and and I have to say that the Jerk is definitely in the top uh, three Steve Martin movies that I, I just love. I can't, I whenever it's on, I gotta watch it because it's just so much fun and so so funny. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. You know what I mean? Top ten? Would you say? Well, I mean, it's, it's, 
Yeah, it's the top three, okay? It's right, the top three. I think it's his best movie. I think it's Steve Martin's best vehicle. And Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, of course. It's t- those two are the best. Yep. Yeah. You know what I mean? Now, next up, I want to talk about Caveman a little bit. Rain and directed by, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, I remember watching, I, I seen this movie on television as a kid. Um, it played on TV a lot, if I remember correctly. Yes. Um, super tribute to Ray Harryhausen. Was it intended to be that from the get-go, or did that just kind of come into well, play? When, when we decided we were going to have dinosaurs, obviously, we looked around for uh, a collaborator, and we found Jim Danforth, who was you know famous and, and brilliantly talented, but he was kind of prickly. He really wanted to do things his way, and he was kind of short-tempered. And we had to replace him with one of his uh, co-workers, a guy named David Allen, who did a, did a fabulous job. And, you know, it, it's kind of a first for creature movies to have a funny dinosaur. Yeah. I think it's still the only one. I don't think there's any comedy dinosaurs. Yeah. I mean, so there's no comedy Harryhausen. It's true. That is true. You know what I mean? It's, uh, I love the, like, it's, it's very, it has a, it's a, it has a campy vibe, of course. It's, it's, like, I seen it at the perfect age, I think, that I really liked it as a kid, you know what I mean? And the dinosaur, you know, there's, you can't match, you know, the, the stop motion. It just, you know, CGI can't compete with it. It's just because it's real, it's there. You know what I mean? It just has the slow, back and forth, you know, like the, I like the part with the mosquito, like face hugger when he smashes it on his face as a kid, you know what I mean? That was good times. Biggest laugh in the movie. Yeah. <laughs> classic, classic. Now we had, we're coming from, you know, with Jaws, I know Jaws had a lot of, with the shark not working, did you have any like reservations going into like a big effects movie like Caveman? No, I mean, we, once we decided to make the movie, we knew it was going to be an effects movie, so yeah. we planned accordingly. We, I mean, we shot in Mexico because it was cheap. Uh, uh, we did stop motion because it was manageable, and uh, we lucked out. You know, we we had a we had a, we had a great time. Yeah, and and it was a great cast. I remember remember that cast. Included Shelley Long and John Matusak and Avery Schreiber, Jack Guilford, uh, Shelley That's Long great. before Cheers. You know, was yes, Dennis Quaid, I believe. Yeah, Dennis Quaid was in there as well. Yeah, and Dennis Quaid. I mean, and Ringo Starr, for Christ's sake. Yeah, how was work with Ringo? Ringo's better movies. It is for sure. Ringo's a very lovable guy. You know yeah. what I mean. He's kind of like a cartoon character in himself. I get yep. the feel. You know what I mean? Um, how was it? Was it difficult working with like? I know he did. He did some of the Beatles movies and stuff. But was it was it any any like disconnect with the fact that it was like a musician coming in to act? Well, it's funny. I I had worked for Richard Lester in a movie called Petulia. So when I learned I was going to be working with uh, when we got Ringo, I called Richard Lester in London. And I said, "Listen, I'm going to be working with Ringo. Can you?" I know you did. You used them very successfully in Hard Day's Night, which is like the definitive rock and roll movie. Mm. I mean, it's never been equaled as a movie about a band. 
And believe me, I know I used to get after Jaws and, and, uh, uh, the jerk and came. I used to get a lot of offers to direct rock and roll movies. And I said, I always would say, look, it's been done. It's been done as well as it can be done. There's, you know, there's no point in trying to duplicate Hard Day's Night. I mean, you're unfortunately, if, if you're a band and you want to make a movie, you're, you're, you've got to face the fact that the first movie in the genre defined it for all time and you're stuck with comparisons. Mm. I mean, you know, it would be easier if the first movie in the genre of, you know, musicians acting was, you know, something like, uh, I don't know, um, something from the 40s or the 50s, uh, uh, White Christmas or, or uh, you know, Bing Crosby film or a Frank Sinatra film, yeah. Guys and Dolls. But uh, <laughs> Hard Day's Night is is a perfect film for its its type, yeah. and you know you're you're doomed if you try to duplicate its success. Truth, yeah, no, it's definitely true. The um, Ringo was cool, cool to work with, and all that. Ringo was great. He was a very conscientious actor. Uh, I mean, Richard gave me Richard Lester gave me some great advice. He said, whenever I had Ringo in a scene, I always shot it with at least two cameras because I could not rely on Ringo to match, to repeat. Yeah. He's not a film actor, so he doesn't do that instinctively. <clears throat> and luckily for me, Dennis Quaid has a preternatural talent for matching. He, <laughs> you know, Richard, Dennis Quaid is a perfect film actor. Yeah. I mean, we filmed scenes two months apart. Uh, the, the mosquito scene, for example, and Dennis duplicated all his actions from the first take, which was you know months earlier. When we returned to the scene, he had a, all his moves down. Ringo, I had to have you know sit there with the editor and make sure that he matched. Yeah. Uh, did Ringo go to the school of Altman when it came to smoking joints? No, Ring, Ringo was was. Uh, was very good about not abusing on the set. That's good. Yeah, he seemed, cause, you know, they get all that Beatles, all the drug history with the Beatles. You, you don't know. Weed's very calm. You know, he's not doing LSD on the set, which we, uh, we, had, we had a guest on once who told us a story about uh, Anthony Perkins, was it? Uh, on the set of one of the Psycho movies, taking LSD out of his mind, which was fun. <laughs> <laughs> Getting truly psycho. <laughs> um, now there's this film called Doctor Detroit that I <laughs> I love to death. I think it's one of the greatest. Another uh, doctor job I enjoyed doing. Yeah how did how did uh, Doctor Detroit come about? Um, I don't know. They had already started filming, like like many of my pictures. I had a reputation after, obviously for being able to come in and, and save a movie. You're the fixer. They call yes, you the, the fixer. <laughs> the, doctor, the doctor is in. Yes. Uh, so they were in trouble and they called me and I, I went to Chicago to location and uh, rewrote as we were filming. And it turned out terrific. You know, I was very happy with the result. 
Once again, I was a matchmaker, just the way that Barbara Bach married Ringo Starr after meeting him on my movie. Mm -hmm. uh, um, Donna Dixon married yeah. Aykroyd as a result of meeting on my movie, or movie that I was involved in. Yeah. So the the Gottlieb uh, matchmaker <laughs> talent never never failed. I like that. How how nerve wracking is it to be writing a film while it's shooting, like on the set? It's a, you know, um, if you're a professional, and I like to think of myself as a professional, yeah, you deal with what is, you deal with the problems, uh, you deal with the egos involved. You 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 know, you're half the time you're being a diplomat, you're mediating between factions. You know, the producers want to keep it cheap, the director wants to make it his movie. The actors want more lines, mm. and you're, you're uh, as a writer on the set or on location. You're balancing all these competing interests, trying to satisfy everybody. But as a as a writer, as Carl Gottlieb, I have to be first and foremost focused on making it a good movie. Mm. The, the job comes first, the project. And if everybody understood that, movies would be a lot better because nobody would indulge their egos. Yeah. So they got you, got you tucked away in like a trailer somewhere writing? Or how, how, how does that go? It goes so you wind up living in a hotel room with a typewriter. Yeah. A companion. If you're lucky, <laughs> and I always insisted on two rooms in my deal because I don't like to write in the same room that I sleep in. Makes sense. So <laughs> I, I tell the production manager, whoever, to book me in a Jason room yeah. with a typewriter in an office, you know, set up. Take yeah. out the beds, put it at a desk and a chair. That's all you need. Yeah. That's all a real writer needs. Yep. You know, I think that um, the movie didn't really go over box office wise. You know, I, I everybody, anybody out there who's never seen this movie, we've talked about it on the show before. You need to go see it. It's, I love it. One of my favorite comedies of the time, you know, the, but box office, it was, I think the first film that Dan Aykroyd did without Belushi because he passed like six months or something prior to them shooting it. So I always heard that that was kind of like part of the, 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 the issue with box office. Yeah. It's a great movie. The movie's great. Yeah. I mean, but people saw Aykroyd and they were kind of looking around, you know, for, you know, where's Belushi, you know, yeah. sadly nowhere to be found. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 you know quite a team. I mean, they'd probably to this day they'd probably still be doing films together. You know what I mean? Oh yeah. It's crazy how those teams break up. You know what I mean? You know, like uh, Richard Pryor and um, Gene Wilder. They were a big team for a while, even though I heard they they weren't really friendly towards the end. You know what I mean? But they were a great team. Well, they, you know they, what I mean? They were primarily solo artists. Yeah. And Belushi and Aykroyd, they actually made a film together called what, Neighbors? Neighbors, it? yeah. John G. Avelson directed and, and, it. And that was bizarre because uh, Aykroyd played the part that you would think Belushi right. would have played, and Belushi played the part that Aykroyd should have played. Yeah. So the movie was you know, fatally flawed from, from its inception because the actors who had a lot of clout, everybody was like, okay, if John and, and uh, Danny want to do this, you know, let's, let's do it for them. Yeah. But they were mistaken. You know, they, they, uh, the chemistry wasn't there. Yeah. It is a, it's a weird flip, 
uh, I think Aykroyd's the best when he's playing almost uh, the wild one. You know what I mean? And even well, when he's that's because yeah. Danny has a great the appearance of sanity, but he's crazy. Yeah, yeah. He has the appearance <laughs> of crazy, but he's sane. Yeah. So it's, it's a it's a you know it's an odd dichotomy, but it, it, it works uh, for the chemistry of the team as long as they stick to those parameters. But when 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 Belushi is going to become the the, the uh, you know the oddball and Danny's going to be or, or Belushi's going to be the the straight arrow and Danny's going to be the oddball, they, you know they're not comfortable in those parts. So yeah, the movie suffered. Yeah, and it's a fun movie. I own it. You know what I mean? Now, Doctor Detroit was originally a novella, right? Like a short story or something like that. Yeah, I remember when I when I when we came down to the arbitration for screen credit. That was the first time I read the source material, which was a short story by Bruce J. Friedman. And when I read the short story, I said, "Holy shit! I wish you had given me this to work on for the rewrite." I could have made it even, even a much better movie if I was starting with the original concept. But by the time it came to me, it had been through Robert Boris's pen and Michael uh, Pressman's direction. Yeah. And neither of them were comedy geniuses. And their later careers, they they went back to what they did best. You know, Michael did Picket Fences and, you know, a lot of serious stuff. And... and uh, uh, Michael Pressman and, and uh, it, it shows, you know, when there's an old saying, shoemaker, stick to your last. You know, there's something to be said for typecasting. Yeah. Both in directing and writing and acting. Yeah. So was the, was the original story more serious or was that comedic as well? No, it was, it was very comedic, but it was okay. just, much much more artfully told. See, M- Michael had this this tragic flaw as a comedy director. Um, he, uh, the Michael, uh, I can't blame him, but for the faculty members and everything, he cast actors who were all thirty years older than himself, which makes sense. If you're 20, yeah, then the faculty would be in their 50s and 60s. But Michael was in his late 40s, early 50s, and he was casting actors who were 70 and 80 years old, who were kind of past their prime to, to mm. play the faculty. And it, it was a mistake, but it was a mistake we were stuck with. And he also he didn't have a flair for visual comedy. One of the things I pride myself as a writer is I can write physical gags. I can write visual humor, yeah. or visual tension for that matter. And I wrote a great visual gag and I checked with the prop department, with the Teamsters to see if it was possible. And everybody said, yeah, we can do that. It's a special effects gag. And I put it in a script and I explained it to Michael and I drew little sketches. And he said, I don't think it's funny. We're not going to shoot it. Mm-hmm. And it just drove me nuts because it was funny. And if he had shot it, it would have been a big joke. I'll tell you what it was. There's a chase in a junkyard, and uh, Aykroyd is driving a, uh, a forklift, and he's trying to catch the limo with mom in it, and he rams it with the forklift, 
and basically says, you know, aha, I have you now, and he presses the levers to lift the limo into the air, because, the, but because the limo is so much heavier than the forklift, when he presses the lift lever, the limo stays on the ground, and the forklift goes up in the air. <laughs> yeah, see, it's a funny joke. Yeah. Michael never got it, so he never shot it. I also, he I, in an interview, I heard him talk about how he, he, if he could go back and take out a lot of the drug stuff, which I thought was interesting because a lot, that's a lot of that's some really fun gags, all that drug stuff. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Now, um, the way that he looked, Doctor Detroit looked, was that in the book or was that kind of a creation from you guys? No, that was Danny's conceit. That was Danny. Yeah, and I, I don't know why he had to do all that weirdness, but. <laughs> <laughs> I love the hand. But, you know, he was the hero at that time, so everybody did whatever he wanted. Yeah, so he was BK, it was another example of be careful what you wish for. I want Dan Aykroyd. Good, you got him. Dan Aykroyd says, "I want to do this. I want to wear this wacky costume," and the director goes, "Okay, tell the wardrobe department," and they do it. But just, I don't know how it advanced the plot or made the movie better. It made it more interesting, maybe visually, but. Yeah, it's more colorful. I wonder what he would if if he didn't if he didn't like call the shot on that. I wonder how he would have actually looked. We'll never know. We'll never know. <laughs> Until they remake Doctor Detroit, I'm waiting. Yeah, I'm waiting for that. You know, at the end they have that promo, which I heard was your, your idea. I heard to put that the part, you know, the wrath of mom coming soon. Yeah, because at that point the Star Wars sequel was. The yeah. biggest news in movies, you know, the wrath of Khan. <laughs> was there talks to, if the movie was successful, was there talks of doing a sequel, or is that strictly just kind of like, uh, you well, know? I like, don't think they, the, the way that everybody's career was going, the studio was not going to give another comedy to Michael Pressman. Dan Aykroyd was on to other things. Yeah. So, you know, it was, it was never real. Yeah. But it would have been fun. I would love to. I heard that there was a, a script that was actually written for it. I've never seen it. I me either, and I would love to change that. I would love to read it. That would be great. Um, yeah, We're coming up on three thirty. I'd like to kind of wrap this up if we can. All right, cool. Um, real quick, we just lost Howard Hessman. Any cool stories of him from Smooth Walker? A great character. I love him in Doctor Detroit. No, I was very happy. To be working with an old pal from the committee yeah. in that movie, so it was you know very made it easy to write for him and do jokes with him and everything because we had a rapport, we had a shorthand that we developed over the days of the committee, and and he's a great improviser himself. I think he improvised a great line. He, uh, he's arguing with T.K. Carter, the the black driver, yeah. and he says uh, uh, at one point uh, Carter's talking about his grandparents who were slaves. And, uh, and and Hesman says, oh, yeah, well, my grandfather owned your grandfather. Yeah. <laughs> That's a tough line. Good line. Tough. Yeah. Well, we usually end the show with one question. And sure. it is, we have a lot of artists, you know, filmmakers, uh, writers, comedians, authors that listen to the show and watch the show. Do you have any advice for anybody that might have come into a snag or a hold up and, you know, discouraging moment in their career, so to speak? that you might have some advice for them? Yes, I have advice for all writers. And that is, you've got to keep writing. If you hit a writer's block, if you hit a snag, 
you got to go back to the keyboard. And if even if you're just typing lists or, you know, organizing your schedule, you got to keep writing. You, you, you write your way through the block. You write other stuff. You write grocery lists. You write uh, jokes. You, you write um, letters to friends. But keep on hitting the keyboard, and eventually you go. You get back to your your purpose for being there. Your raison d'être. You got a script to finish. You got a project, and if you devote yourself to the project and keep writing, you'll finish it, and you'll finish it uh, to your credit. And to me, a professional is somebody who, under the worst of circumstances, you know, stupid producers, thoughtless actors, uh, you know callous production managers. You could go through all the negatives that you could find. As long as you keep your mind on writing the, the story, on the script, making one line of dialogue follow the next, keep the dialogue plausible, keep the exposition understandable, just do the job of the screenwriter. And uh, you, you can't be faulted for that, and the product will reflect quality because you've, you've never strayed from the objective. And as a writer, your job is to finish writing. And a professional is somebody who, and it's, whether it's a professional carpenter or a professional air conditioning repairman or a professional comedian or a professional deep sea diver, is, a professional can be counted on, no matter what the circumstances, to deliver a acceptable product. You know, if I'm a professional writer, what I write is always going to be filmable. It might not be genius. It might not be high art. But, you know, sometimes movies and television shows aren't intended to be high art. They're just intended to be what they are, a series episode or a lightweight film. Um, but if you're conscientious about writing it, A, it'll come out well, and B, you can't be faulted. So be a professional. Write. If you're a professional writer, keep writing, no matter what. Hell yeah, I like that. Well, Carl, we're gigantic fans of your work, man, and we really appreciate your time. Thank you for being on the show. Happy yes. to be here. Thanks for asking me, and uh, good luck, and uh, good luck, and God bless, as they say. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Okay. I have a good one. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Cool beans. All right, folks, that was a fantastic episode of the Boombastic cast with Carl, Carl Gottlieb, uh, a fucking hero. This dude's the man. Um, for anybody that listens to the show knows how much I fucking love Dr. Detroit, and he's made movies that are arguably better than Dr. Detroit. Don't tell, you know, don't tell nobody. But, you know, some other the jerk and, you know, Jaws are films that, woo, those movies, you know, Jaws, one of the biggest films of all time, period, end of sentence. He breaks through genres, you know what I mean? The Jerk, you know, I, I, one of the greatest comedies ever made, you know what I mean? For sure, to this day, until when there is no more thing, such thing as days, it'd still be a great film. Um, Caveman, I loved it, dude, from my childhood. You know, it's one of the first movies I really remember seeing. You know what I mean? Hawkman, what'd you think? Hey, I had so much fun. It's good. I mean, 
what I I mean, don't get me wrong. As I always say, I love talking about you know the stories, all the experiences. But what I also love is the conversations. Like for example, talking about how back in his time, uh, not saying that there weren't people, you know, trying to always you know get the gig and all that, but there was more of a sense of community. There was more a sense of you know, oh, I didn't get this gig, but hey. Maybe you will, so yeah. you know, check it out. And it's one of the problems that both Matt and I have found and we've fought against, unfortunately, is that a lot of people in this industry, I mean, it is competitive, but a lot of people lose the sight of that if you want to be successful, and I truly believe this, if you want to be successful, the best way to try to be successful is helping each other out. For sure. And and because the fact is, yes, the, the uh, cards are stacked against you. It's not an easy profession. It's not easy to get in. But if I help if I help Matt get something and then, you know, he goes up and, and, and becomes successful, then he can help me. And, you know, it's it's the back and forth. Right. Because the chances of being more successful is the chances of working with people willing to help each other out. And that's sure. one of the things that, unfortunately, I think that is missing a lot in, in society. I th- yeah, I, th- I think when we had Larry on the show, Larry Hank, I think we talked a little bit about that too, just kind of yeah. the camaraderie of the committee, you know what I mean, in groups like that. And a lot of those, the, you know, Second City and stuff like that, where you, a lot of, you see a lot of the, 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 the comedians of that day that, that blew up in film, you know, they're all kind of part of these groups and it's, it's a supportive group where they support each other. And it's really unfortunate that you don't really catch that. I'm sure in some circles you might catch that, but not as many as back in the day, unfortunately, you know, um, but a great interview. Again, we want to plug the book. Oh yeah. The Jaws log. All right. Okay. This book, look at that double time. Uh, oh, yeah. Fantastic. It was written uh, while the film was being made. It came out, I think, a, a month after the movie came out. You know what I mean? Um, or at least it was being stored in his brain while the movie was being made. And then he threw it on paper like that. And uh, I own multiple Jaws books and yeah. documentaries. Also, um, has uh, cool pictures inside the books right here. That's a, it does have cool pics in it. Uh, I, like I said, it's the best Jaws book I've ever read. Uh, if you're a fan of making films or Jaws or just films in general, I say pick it up. It's on Amazon for 15 bucks. It's no big deal. It's a fucking meal at McDonald's, dude. You know what I mean? Except this will fill your soul this every time. A meal you for your brain. A meal for That's your brain. Meal for your brain. Sink your Jaws into Jaws, the Jaws log. You know what I mean? But for sure, we're not just whistling Dixie. The book was great. Uh, check it out uh, and uh, let us know what you think of it. Do you want to say anything in closing? Nothing, just that it was a great interview. Uh, we were so happy to have him on talking about, you know, not only his experiences as a writer, as a director, as an actor. <coughs> this guy has done a lot. He's, bit, he's, he's worked with some of the, the greatest people uh, out there. Right. And Extremely talented guy, uh, extremely uh, has great insight and definitely like what he was saying about, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to get back into writing. I kind of fell out of it for a while and I'm trying to get back in and, and his, uh, 
his advice of just keep on writing, which, you know, is something I have to take to a heart and go back into because yeah. uh, that's the only way you do it. I'm with that, yo. So with that being said, go grab his book, go watch one of his masterpiece films and celebrate Carl Gottlieb today. Why not? And we'll catch all y'all on the next episode of the Boom Bastic Cast. All right? Big peace. Nothing but love for you, baby. We'll talk to you soon. Peace. Peace.